Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Um, we did an episode, episode 652, Dr. Julie Framini McBride did a podcast about helping women solve porn use, and then she has got a couple um, cohorts, I guess is a good term, that are also talking about really important subjects in our faith community and kind of roped them in to be on the podcast. And um, one of those is um, our guest today, and we have one coming up in a while. Um, roped in it probably isn't the right term, but um, anyway, this is Dr. Shalom Levitt. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Levitt. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I'll read you a little bit of the bio and of, of Dr. Levitt. She is an assistant professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University, where she researches sexual function, sexual mindedness, and the connection between sex and relationship well-being. She received her PhD from Penn State. Her research specifically examines how being present, accepting, and non-judgmental is linked to improved sexual functioning and satisfaction. Dr. Levitt's research has been published in academic journals, including the Journal of Sex Research and Archives of Sexual Behavior. She teaches seminars on sex and healthy relationship around the world. She grew up in Yakima, Washington, with seven sisters and one brother. She attended BYU as an undergraduate in economics and then went on to the J. Reuben Clark Law School. On the first day of law school, um, Shalom met David Levitt, and they are married. And they married after their first year of law school. Shalom practices family and practiced family and estate law for years and then returned to get her master's degree in marriage and family and human development. And Dr. Levitt then was invited as a Fulbright fellow in Ukraine and taught in Kiev. I say that right. Is it Kiev? Yeah, yeah, excellent. She also ran a research study in Ukraine on how religious and secular traditions were associated with couples and parent-child well-being. Um, and now, and so you have kind of, we're going to get into the content you develop, but there's a really unique personal story there. Um, you have a JD from, um, mm. which is I Juris of Doctorate. I actually Googled that listeners. I've always heard people get JDs <laughs> from law school. Yeah, just I, a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> but then you like shifted gears and, you know, you're married, you have um, eight children, you have four grandchildren. So you have a very per unique personal life story. I'm sure if if your younger self could see where you are now in your first year at BYU, you're shaking your head sideways. You would never have imagined. <laughs> never. In and fact, I, I almost dropped out of BYU my freshman year because I I had a lot of crazy things going on and I failed a math class. <laughs> And I called my dad and I said, I'm coming home. I can't, I'm not cut out for this. And he said, why don't you just give it one more semester? <laughs> and so I did and, and uh, sorted things out and found out I, I, I was cut out for it. <laughs> and I love at some point in this podcast, we do this a lot with people that are kind of further along in their professional careers and um, to give young advice to younger people. Um, younger women and men, I think it creates vision for younger listeners that are wondering how my life is going to work out. Is it all worth it? And your story shifted gears professionally going from law school to where you are now. Yeah. Um, so, but 
Tell us about the work you do, um, just so people can kind of frame it in your mind, in their mind, what you do. Well, um, I do research on on sex and how sex contributes to happy, healthy, stable relationships. Um, and I kind of have a little niche in that I was listening to some other researchers talk about mindfulness in education and how it really helps teachers cope with the stress of teaching. And they were talking about how just this simple practice of being aware and non-judgmental can really lower anxiety, uh, diminish stress. And in, in an education setting, right, it, it reduced burnout. And, you know, coming from the perspective of a sex researcher, I was like, that has got to apply to the high anxiety environment that often occurs within a sexual relationship, where maybe we have conflict because of the relationship, or maybe we have body image issues, or we've listened to socialized messages that say sex is this or that. So I started looking into that and uh, developed a way for us to measure how mindful people were during sexual experiences. And that's a lot of what my research is. And then later, I developed a curriculum like now we know we can measure this. Uh, Can we teach this? Can we teach people who maybe aren't so mindful to be more mindful in their relationship, but then also particularly in their sexual interactions? And what we found is Yes, we can. <laughs> and it is it, it has a huge impact on their well-being, not only in their in their sexual experience, but in their relationship as a whole, right? It it settles them down, it helps them learn to connect in a much more meaningful way. And uh and so that really blesses or benefits the relationship as a whole. Um you said some really cool things and my professional work is I'm a market researcher is kind of where I grew up in my career over at the Tanner building. I love the marketing research classes. And so you're singing my music in a space I've never (laughs) thought about. (laughs) Um, If we can measure this, we can teach this. What a powerful concept. Um, So talk more about that. And I'd love you to talk about you know, BYU's support of this. Here you are, you know, you're a professor at BYU, how BYU feels about this. I, I sense our church and BYU is very supportive of this type of research, but so you could talk or you could just go wherever you want to go, Dr. Levitt, it's your yeah. time. <laughs> well, I'll tell you a couple stories, actually. Um, so when I was interviewing at BYU uh, for a job, I was a little nervous because, right, I am studying, researching something that some people, especially in our culture, are a little bit uncomfortable with. And um, and so I thought, well, will I be accepted? I'm just going to be who I am because I'm, I, I don't want to fake it. If I do get a job, I don't want to fake it and be something else. And so I was pretty authentic with everybody. And I remember one one of the other faculty members who is now a dear friend of mine, uh, we were walking to lunch and he said, I bet your research is kind of PG-13. And I said, no, my research is G-rated. The fact that we think the topic of sex 
is PG-13 or R-rated is a problem. And we need to start overcoming that very mindset, right? Talking, I, I talk about my research to my children regularly, and we are very comfortable talking about this in not only a matter of fact way, but also a spiritual way, right? Letting my kids know that Heavenly Father wants us to love this part of who we are uh, and, and embrace it and understand the beauty of it and the power of sexuality. And what I fear is that we've become so shut down and taboo about this topic that we've really given a lot of power to Satan, you know, to, to define what it is and to make us feel shame about these very beautiful aspects of what God has built into us. So that's one story. Uh, my, my next story is kind of just about this idea of BYU being supportive. What I found is that um, as I would, as I was moving ahead in my research and I was getting published um, pretty regularly because this combination of sex and mindfulness is something that a lot of people haven't heard of, but when they hear of it, it's like, ah, that makes sense. But I have no idea how to do that. Uh, so I was wanting to take it to the next step, like we just talked about, and start teaching it and seeing how it benefited relationships. If we followed a couple for six, eight months, could we track their improvement? And so I needed to get some additional funds to start this research. Within my first year, um, not only did I get funds from my department, but also from the college. And these were just from people evaluating uh, my research and the quality of it. And I felt like I was very supported financially, but also um, in every other aspect. You know, I had colleagues who co-authored things with me, helped me in my intervention, um, really kind of set me up as an even better researcher. Uh, lots of really good support there. Why? I mean, I think the answer is obvious, but I'd love to have you share why you've received so much support. I think people can see the value of what I'm researching. Um, I think that once we can settle down and let our fears kind of dissipate on this topic, we all know that this is a deeply important, critical topic for each of us individually and in our marriages. Um, this is something that has been long distorted. And so for us to actually openly talk about this from a perspective where we understand that God embraces this part of who we are and wants us to have a beautiful connection with our spouse. And you know, he, is the, he is the creator of our bodies. So of course he knows how we work, how we function. He's given us a few boundaries, a few guidelines for us to, to stay within so that we can truthfully express and enjoy this part of who we are in a meaningful way. But he is not the one who introduces shame on this topic. 
Um, that is somebody else. <laughs> and uh, we need to start, you know, shedding any attitudes we have of shame about this. We certainly need to talk about how best to express our sexuality, how to talk to our children about their sexuality and the the part that sexuality plays within a loving committed relationship. So I think that why people are paying attention to this research research is because it just simply makes sense. It it hits the right um mark even within a gospel setting. I in fact I have had big classes every semester where I'm teaching this topic for a semester long uh, class and students at the end of the semester uh, just in, in, in large you know, amounts to say this absolutely changed my life. This was one of the most important classes I took at BYU. I totally believe that. And this is out of the School of Family Life listeners. I believe that's where you're professored. Tell it us is. the name of the classes. Just what are these classes titled? I'm just curious. Um, are they upper division classes for, for um, or are they anybody at BYU, lower division classes? Yeah, anyone can take it. Um, it is uh, SFL 376, which is entitled Healthy Sexuality in Marriage. And, um, and then I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I have taught a, a sexual mindfulness class also to undergrads. It's not regularly offered. Um, and then I teach marriage prep um, and, and kind of the idea of how to start off with good attitudes, how to first of all, have a growth mindset yourself uh, and start working on improving yourself as an individual. And then how that can transfer into creating a healthy, strong relationship and marriage um, in the future. That's really cool. Um, doesn't surprise me that those classes are full, and I just wish every um, Latter-day Saint had that kind of content available to them, especially, you know, growing up, um, even at any age for that matter. You said some things that really resonate with me. I wrote down, he does not introduce shame on this topic, meaning our Heavenly Father. Um, listeners, this has been a long journey for me to understand shame and the role that I believe Satan uses to create shame around different things um, and the power of shame then to separate us from the love of God, the love of ourselves. And there is so much shame around this topic. Um, but I think, you know, education, um, talking about it, fact-based research, classes like this sort of take the shame away. And I really agree we're sexual beings. This is part of our mortal um, journey, and it's a good thing. <laughs> and I think I kind of was generally taught that growing up. I'm in my 60s, but I didn't, you know, there was no conversation growing up or no classes like this, you know, no discussion about this topic at church. And so, you know, I was kind of on my own. My wife and I had to figure this out. I remember reading a book before we were married that was helpful. but you know, that's kind of it. And um, mindfulness is a new topic um, that 
particularly um, our kids are very aware of and very and using in a way that's very helpful. Them bringing mindfulness into this experience is really thoughtful. Just keep sharing, you know, with this, your passions, and you could talk more about this space. You could give principles for couples that are listening right now that just want to do better and don't want to wait to read something or just want yeah. to hear like top five tips or. Or you could do anything you want to do. I kind of just let my guests run yeah. with what they let want me, to share. Let me just share a little bit more about mindfulness. Okay. Um, I, I think the reason that mindfulness is kind of a little trendy right now is because we live in a pretty chaotic world. Um, we are pulled in many directions, lots of, uh, lots of stimulus in, in our just normal everyday life. And uh, so this idea of slowing down and paying attention to just the moment that's right in front of me. That's something we need to think about because we've become so engaged in multitasking and distractions that it probably is something we need to practice. I was just telling my children um, the other day, they were asking me about my childhood and I said, well, you know, I grew up in kind of a farm setting and we were outside of the city limits and there were orchards all around us and a lake, um, you know, a little a little ways behind our house. And I didn't have a neighborhood of friends. And so I spent a lot of time thinking and walking around the lake and just pondering my life, what I valued, uh, how I felt at the moment. And I don't think we have enough time nowadays to do that. And so I think it's a really great practice to just for a few minutes a day, set everything aside, clear your mind and just focus on your breath. Your breath, you know, is the is generally what people kind of anchor into in a in a meditation, mostly because I mean, there's no special reason why, but your breath is just always with you no matter where you are. There's your breath. Um, you know, you could focus on the beating of your heart. If you could connect with that, you could focus on sensation or a mantra. Um, there's lots of ways for us to slow down and start paying attention to how am I experiencing this moment? Am I feeling a lot of stress? If so, why? Um, and, and maybe just starting to process our own experience as mortal physical beings right and um what we know when people do that they feel more connection first of all with themselves they start recognizing their emotion emotion is so big and we do not talk about it enough emotion is the main part of a sexual experience and again so many people go through the mechanics of sex, of feeling their body, um, experiencing arousal, and going through that without connecting with the emotion that that also brings up. And so what we have is what some researchers have termed, uh, you know, like uh, lonely sex, where we're with this other person we maybe even feel affection for them and connection in some way, but we're not fully connecting and sharing who we are in an authentic way 
we're holding back. We have a lot of walls and barriers. We put on some emotional armor. We maybe even have put on emotional armor that we ourselves haven't penetrated, right? We've isolated ourselves. And so what mindfulness does, it just helps us start breaking that down and starting to really feel who you are as an individual. How do, what are my emotions? What are my thoughts? What am I hiding? What do I want to share? Um, and then we can do that with our partner, right? We start sharing, experiencing these emotions, this idea of being mindful and in the present moment with our partner and with our, as we're sharing our bodies with each other. And that takes it to a completely different, um, or just makes a completely different experience. Talk um, to the partner that um, wants to do this is sort of saying, you know, honey, I think we could improve our sexual experiences. Um, you know, and one partner might be more willing and vulnerable than the other partner. And I, I don't know if there's any science here. I think women would be more likely to have this conversation with their husbands than husbands with women. That would be my hypothesis. <laughs> But talk, give us language, and you've done a good job in the last segment, just with a partner wanting to do more of this um, and have that help us have that conversation with our partner. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, relationship education actually has a lot of good information about how this process occurs. And you're right. It is generally women who are kind of driving this train to be more emotionally connected. Um, and I think that's occurring for a number of reasons. I think men have been a little socialized to not be emotional. It's not manly to cry or to feel too much intense emotion, period. Um, and so I think men are at a little disadvantage, but they can overcome that, right? And so if their wife is inviting them to, to uh, you know, let's, let's share more emotions, let's be more connected, um, oftentimes men will resist a little just because they feel uncomfortable. They're in uncharted territory. They don't have practice like women do talking about emotion in, in much detail. However, <laughs> I have found in my research, because it is couched within the topic of sex, men are much more willing to talk about emotions if it is connected to sex. Uh, because men are much uh, are generally much more driven by sex than women are. We know in almost every study out there, men have higher sexual desire than women do. That's a universal. Um, now, when we put this sharing and connection in context of a sexual relationship, men are like, yeah, I have some interest in improving that part of our relationship. So what happens is, you know, it's the the medicine of being more emotional is is uh, delivered in the package of talking or improving your sexual relationship. And so what we have is many more men are willing to uh, sign up for my classes on sexual mindfulness than a normal relationship education class. So that's a real that's a real bonus. Um, what I would say if couples are in this spot where the wife is thinking, you know, I would really like to feel more connection, more emotion with you. 
Um, a good place to start would be just read my blog. I have a lot of different topics up there and uh, you could read some some of these together and see if it kind of resonates with you. And then occasionally we offer classes. Right now they're all they're all in person, um, but we are working on creating an online class as well so that people can take it at their own pace and in the privacy of their home. But right now it is in person. Um, and what we find, we, we have actually done you know studies on this. So we have followed the participants in these um, classes, measured how they felt before the intervention, after the intervention, and then like six months later. And it's pretty dramatic. Um, couples feel not only did their sexual satisfaction increase, but so did their relational satisfaction, their emotional connection, their sexual communication. And interestingly, not that this is important, but um, it is interesting, all areas of their sexual behavior increased, right? So there was more kissing, more sex, period, of all varieties. And so Couples are feeling like this is a part of their relationship that has just opened up and they are exploring things that they hadn't before shared. They are seeing how it kind of the tentacles of a happy sex life um, go into every other area. They feel more creative, more at peace, more stability. Um, it's very interesting to read the comments of, of the participants who have gone through this. Great segment. Um, listeners will link in the show notes to your blog, but just tell us how to get to your blog if someone wants to just hear it and write it down mentally. Yeah. So I have both um, a blog, just my own website, which is just my name, shalomlevitt.com. Um, I also have been asked to... Uh, regularly blog for psychology today. So again, that's just under my name. And um, a lot a lot of them are shared in both places. Uh, but I also have a podcast. So we talk about, I talk with different guests. And then I also talk with a couple of BYU professors about our research or topics that we notice coming up in our classes or just in our other, you know, conferences um, or seminars. I love, you know, I, you said this, but I just want to make sure I understood it, is if you improve a relationship um, and the communication during sex, that that scales into the entire relationship. If I think that's what you're helping me understand, yeah. is improving Absolutely. being vulnerable and honest and developing these skills of, of vulnerability is probably the best word, but just and talking openly about how each partner feels in this um, very intimate setting, that to me would scale to the relationship. It could improve the entire relationship as you just develop better skills of mindfulness and communication and vulnerability. And I just, any more thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is we, we first of all, model it for them by being able to talk about sex in a really open, frank uh, way. But then we give them some skills. We have them practice, um, you know, certain activities. Some can be done right in the class. Some we ask them to do at home because it's much more private. Um, but we're helping them practice doing the most difficult 
um, conversation, which is typically sex, right? Or even problems within their sexual interaction. And so they're practicing the most difficult topic. (laughs) And then it's easy to then say, oh yeah. And we also need to talk about who empties the dishwasher (laughs) and how often we, you know, go out to dinner, whatever the other issues are. After seeing how to successfully move through this hard topic, it's much easier to then bring up other things that have kind of been lurking beneath the surface that we now can tackle because we feel some confidence, some efficacy in our ability to talk about these hard things. Um, This is kind of a tangent, but I remember when I was a YSA bishop, we do these final interviews with the YSAs and they kind of wanted to know a checklist sometimes of what was okay in the bedroom and what wasn't. And they thought I kind of had the inside scoop that we share in the last interview. And I just told them, first of all, I realized I didn't know what to tell them. And so I asked some therapists and they said, well, I think the best thing you tell them is there's not a checklist. They just have to decide what brings them together and is equally beneficial to both of them. And the church doesn't have a checklist and you as a YSA bishop shouldn't because I remember my own experience being interviewed by my YSA bishop in 1980. He did give me a checklist and he actually said, you can break the law of chastity in your marriage, but he didn't ever say how or why. And it just kind of left me with this. I don't quite, it created probably shame, Dr. Levin. Yeah. And big question mark. Big question mark. And so it was this kind of like, uh, so I don't know if, so that's kind of where I netted out towards the end of my YSA assignment is, I, and I would actually proactively tell the YSAs because a lot of, I think we're wondering, and I just, there's, you know, the, the principles are, um, it needs to bring you together and be equally beneficial to both of you. And you need to figure that out and not share that with other couples to figure out, you know, that intimate part of your relationship, how it compares to others. Any, any advice to local leaders or, couples as they're starting out and you know i just wish i'd i probably wish i'd heard you talk about this segment before i was a YSA bishop (laughs) well i i think you're really wise in in helping them understand that um decisions about sexuality um come under the personal line of revelation right so the two of you should be prayerful about it and certainly talking with each other about what's good in our relationship what what makes me feel connected to you like i'm respecting and honoring you and that the same is happening for me now the thing i want to mention here is that oftentimes what might happen is one person has an idea of what they would like to try and so they They share that with their partner and the other partner shuts it down and says, that's, you know, shameful or that's not okay. When that happens, we need to do a little more conversation, right? We need to have a little further conversation. Why is the person wanting to do what they want to do? Let's let's explore that. What does that make you feel? What are you hoping to gain from it? And why do you not want to do? what is being suggested. And it might be because of some really negative socialized messages you got from your mom or your young women's leader that, you know, wearing lingerie was slutty or, you know, whatever. And so we have to kind of uncover 
as a couple, why we want to or not want to do certain things. Now, as long as they're honoring and respecting and focused on each other, right? We're not bringing in pornography or a third person or, you know, something that's outside of our marriage. Um, As long as we're doing that and it's within, um, you know, these respectful boundaries that God's given us, um, we really need to be investigating why we might have a hang up about doing something or not doing something and explore that together. That That's going to take some time. I'm going to have to kind of sort through, why do I feel hesitant about this thing or the other thing? Or why do I really push for this position or this sexual act? Um, and let's talk about that as a couple. The opportunity this gives us is to know each other at a much more intimate level, because each of us is going to have to say, I'm going to think about why it is I, I like this or I don't like this. And then we're going to talk about it as a couple. Um, that is such an opportunity for deeper intimacy. And we need to take advantage of that. That's part of why sex is such a bonding experience. If we're going about it in a healthy way, we're learning things about this person that they haven't shared with anybody else. We haven't shared this part of ourselves with anybody else. And it's vulnerable, right? We might, we feel like maybe we'll be judged for it. Um, but if it's met with love and we're, we're disclosing openly, here's an opportunity for some connection that's really going to create deep roots in our relationships. Wow. That was a terrific segment. I thought of that segment as you were answering that question, also in the context of when kiddos open up to mom and dad about um, sex. And I'm just thinking the way you handled that last segment is the way we should handle those sort of questions. I mean, when you said about why and how do you feel this way, instead of just dismissing it, it was a chance to ask open-ended questions that could increase the connection between two people. And I'm aware of the mistakes that I've made as a father as our kids were raised up where they were opening up and I probably created shame and um, missed a chance to have the kind of communication you just suggested we have. And so give advice to parents in the same vein as their kiddos are opening up at different ages to create, I would think one of the biggest goals of these conversations is to create no shame in their questions and to create this this relationship of open, honest communication. I'm a safe person for you to open up about the realities of your life. Yeah, that's such an important topic. Um, and I think you've written a book. It will probably link to, I found two of your books at Amazon. There may be more that you co-authored or authored. One is a better way to teach kids about sex. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, and that would be a great resource. And it, it will go into more detail for what I'm going to say here. But I I remember... Uh, a number of times, some of my children coming to me with either a question or maybe they felt that that stepped over the line um, that we had discussed as as a family with our own values. Um, and and maybe they were um, just curious about something. Right. So any of those any of those contexts when children come to us and they're asking us something pretty vulnerable and maybe they've already 
experienced like some guilt over it. And so for us to shut it down or to not honor what it is they're saying creates just that very thing you said. It it creates this environment of shame. Um, And so I remember one time when I did get it right (laughs) was uh, one of my kids came to me and had had indicated they had a, a, a bit of a habit of touching themselves. And, um, I remember just, here's where my mindfulness kind of came into play. I was really grateful for this. I could just take a breath, you know, before I said anything and just kind of like get present with myself. And I remember feeling a little emotional and just saying, thank you. Thank you for telling me that. Thank you for sharing that with me. Um, because that just makes me feel so honored that you would trust me and that maybe we've created an environment here where we can talk about these things that are super sensitive. And and so I just think if parents could maybe take a pause and just express their gratitude to their children for being willing to invite them on this part of their child's journey. You know, it's 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 a scary thing to learn about something as vast and intimate as our sexuality. And so and then other times when um, children maybe had questions, they had heard something from their peers or um, a movie, who knows where they might have been influenced. And so they wanted to ask a question, never put it off answer right away say you know what and and tell them how important that question is and maybe you don't even have the answer and admit that and say you know wow such a great question i'm not sure i know how about i do a little research from some safe sources i know about and i'll come back to you tonight or tomorrow or you know however long it's going to be i remember my brother-in-law Um, was rushing out to the airport. He was late for a business trip and his young daughter asked him where babies come from right as he was headed out the door. And he said, oh, sweetie, I really want to tell you all about this, but I just don't have time right now. We'll talk when I get home. And she said, that's all right. You don't know, probably. (laughs) You know, so... When we put our kids off, sometimes we undermine uh, their their um, trust in whether or not we can answer these questions. So we need to answer immediately, take the time, really respect the fact that they would be so willing to include us in this part of their journey of discovering, um, you know, what it means to be a sexual being. Um, that was a great segment too. I've never thought of mindfulness, taking a breath and in the middle of um, being asked a question from a kid. And I loved your answer of thank you for inviting me. I think you used that word into your life. What a, if I'm a kiddo and I hear that from my parents, that's a pretty empowering feeling that this is my life. I own my life. Um, but my mom, my dad want to be a part of this journey with me as a trusted partner. And yeah, they know a lot and I want to learn from them. Um, yeah. I, lo- I just love that. I also have thought about this listeners and I've shared this before. We, we 
one thing I like that we did as parents is we told our kids any word they heard it at school, they could tell us and they would not get in trouble. And we would tell them <laughs> what that word meant. So we took the fear out of the bad words. So we, they already knew how we'd respond. And yeah. I think that principle can apply to these conversations, um, you know, these questions and just sort of say, you can ask me anything about however we define the subject sexuality. Um, you're going to have questions and I will, and this is how I will always respond. I will be grateful that you opened up about this. And if you, this is a tangent, if you've got a queer kid, you can even talk. If you're wondering about your sexuality, I will be so grateful you involve me in that discussion as you're trying to figure that out. And so yeah. sometimes we take, and I don't know if that falls under mindfulness or just taking the anxiety out by sort of explaining to kids ahead of time how we'll respond as parents because some kids are going to be more naturally opening up and some kids are going to hold things a little closer to the vest. So I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that or if you want to start a new subject. Yeah, you know, I guess the thought, and maybe it's just a continuation of what we were just talking about, that sexuality is intended to create intimacy. And, and that means intimacy in our conversations with our children, wow. that they leave feeling closer to us and we leave feeling closer to them. And, and so we need to make sure that that's the environment that we're creating and that it's not a lecture. Instead, it's a discussion. I'm asking them how they feel and I'm learning from what they're telling me, what their experience is. I remember one time some of my high schoolers were talking about, you know, these um, little rubber wristbands that are promote different things. Well, I guess at, at the time they were in high school, part of the meaning of those wristbands was that you were up for different sexual acts, like, you know, different colors meant different things that you were willing to do. And I did not know that. Uh, that was news to me. And so when one of my kids was asking me about this, I'm like, I do not know. And I am so glad you would share that with me. Um, and so letting them understand that you're willing to learn from them too. I want to know what they're experiencing inside their head and with their, you know, in their environment. I want to know those things because they matter deeply to me, um, just them as a person, they just matter to me. And so that we could talk about something so important as sex, whatever that means, um, that's a pretty beautiful part of developing that strong relationship with my child. It creates intimacy, certainly as a couple, as we talk about sex and engage in sex, you would hope it's creating deeper intimacy. Um, but what's surprising is that I find in my research, it doesn't always. Um, oftentimes, sex is a wedge. Sex is something that creates distance between couples or parents and children. And we need to, we need to repent of that and find better skills to employ so that we're creating connection. Keep sharing. What else is on your mind? Oh, um, 
I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe toss me a question that comes, comes to your mind. Um, now you've got me back in my YSA assignments. We had some of these discussions okay. <laughs> just like 10 years ago. And I was a little always concerned about the YSAs that I felt like it was just hormones getting them to the temple that, um, and they hadn't, and they wanted to be, you know, keep the law of chastity. And so that was the path to keep the law of chastity is, you know, get to the temple, get to temple marriage. And I love that. I love temple and I love temple marriage and making that covenant and a couple going in together. But I was a little worried sometimes they'd never developed, you know, they'd never had a foundation beyond just sort of the hormones that were getting them to the temple. Now that's not true and that's not completely fair because then there were some YSAs that had, had you develop you could clearly tell that they had this deep um foundation of trust, honesty, vulnerability, um, and hormones. And I any just advice to yeah. couples that are dating, um just to develop, you know, maybe the groups that are <laughs> maybe that that group that's clearly in love and, you know, they want to keep the law chassis and they want to get to the temple and just any advice to that group or any advice you want to give generally to couples as they're dating and getting engaged and the things they can be doing during that time to improve their marriage. Yeah. Lots of thoughts. How's that for an hour question? (laughs) I love that. Um, I remember I was teaching a seminar over in Eastern Europe and this, um, I think it was a father raised his hand and he was kind of ashamed, but he said, you know, my, she wasn't even a teenager yet. I think she was 12. My daughter um, is just so boy crazy. And all she can do is just think and talk about boys. And she wants to, you know, be with boys all the time. And he said, you know, how can I just help her? She's just out of control. And again, you know, I, I think it's important for us to pause and kind of feel what he must be feeling. And um, I just said, you know, I think you can be grateful that everything is working as it should. Her hormones are kicking in, right? She is attracted to other people um, and she is wanting to explore those relationships in more depth, right? Now, certainly we want to keep them within boundaries, like what you were saying. Um, And I'll tell you why we want to keep them within boundaries. Um, There's some science behind all of this. I, I I love that my testimony is strengthened when I... Um, and uh, am engaging in my research. Um, Heavenly Father gave us boundaries around our sexuality for a really wise purpose. We know that as we feel heightened arousal, a number of hormones increase in our body. And one of those hormones that increases is oxytocin. And sometimes oxytocin is called the attachment hormone, right? We attach to other people. A mother, after she gives birth, she has a just a huge rise of oxytocin so that she can bond with that baby. Well, the same thing happens in a lesser degree during sexual arousal, right? Right. As we have heightened arousal and orgasm, we have this burst of oxytocin and we literally are bonding with this person that we are near to, 
Now, if we do this with a number of random people, um, we're bonding with an awful lot. Our, our body can't help it. We connect with that person um, emotionally um, and, you know, through this attachment process. And then, but then it gets broken, right? If we're not in a committed, loving relationship, that attachment gets broken and we have to move on to a new partner. And if that happens repeatedly, we might have a little attachment uh, problems, right? We might not be able to attach when we are in a loving, healthy, committed relationship. We might struggle to attach like we would want to. Can that be overcome? Absolutely. But it's going to take some extra work. So a loving Heavenly Father who knows how our bodies were created and made said, hey, let's just keep this within a committed relationship. Let's reserve this sexual expression for a committed, loving relationship. Then when I attach, when I bond with this person, um, I can bond in every way, right? Not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually and relationally. And what I like to tell my young students is that, you know, it's kind of like we have these dials that we're trying to um, keep pretty even, right? There's the touch dial. How much do we touch each other? There's the commitment dial. How committed are we? And uh, there's the trust dial. How, how much trust is there in the relationship? We want to keep those all at about the same level. We're touching and trusting this person as much as we're committed to this person, right? We want to kind of develop all three of these areas at the same time. Um, and I love this, this thought from, he's actually a pastor, um, and, and he just recently died, Pastor Timothy Keller. Um, he said, what we want to do is undress emotionally, share with our partner you know, the parts of who we are in every area of our life. And the more we're able to create this trusting um, relationship that's got a little level of commitment, that commitment is deepening as we share more and more with each other, we're developing this connection. Then at some point, when we have made a commitment to this person, undressing physically is just a natural outgrowth of that. Once I've undressed emotionally, undressing physically is a beautiful outgrowth of that. Now, if I, if I reverse those roles, if I undress physically um, and I share my body with somebody, they may not be willing to also share my soul, right? My emotions. And then that's where we have a lot of heartache, a lot of betrayal, a lot of, um, a, a, a lot of disconnect happens there. And I have a friend who actually researches kind of the hookup culture and how it can be really damaging um, for both men and women, maybe more so for women because women invest emotionally a lot quicker than men do. Um, but what we see is that spells trouble when we're sharing our bodies before we've shared our soul and have a level of commitment that can um, create a safe, committed, loving environment. Well, that's a terrific segment. Uh, thank you for your work. I'm thinking 
I'm back in my YSA assignment working through the repentance process of people that were sexually active. And um, I put this in my book, listeners, you know, hope-filled repentance in the book of proving Latter-day Saint culture. But I went from this sort of mechanical checklist to try to get to the bottom of the iceberg. A therapist taught me this principle. And I realized that being sexually active was at the top of the iceberg, but I needed to sometimes, and sometimes the therapists get involved to really understand what's at the bottom of the iceberg. And I realized in some situations for women, because their emotional health was so poor and their living environment was so poor, the only way they knew how to feel love was to be sexually active. And it was not about sex. And if I just treated it about sex, I was often adding to her burden. So I learned I had to be I, I just couldn't say, okay, if you're sexually active, this is the six things that are your repentance process. It had to be more nuanced than it had to be led by the Spirit. And I had to be sort of, I'm not a therapist, but I had to be open to trying to understand what was at the bottom of the iceberg. For most of the men, it was about sex. But for some of the women, and they were in the hookup culture because that's the only place they could feel love. Um, it's the only way they knew how to do that. And it wasn't sort of this intentional, I want to disappoint God, so I'm going to go on the hookup culture. It was right. more about the bottom of the iceberg challenges that need to work through often with a therapist and not necessarily a bishop. So there's just, I don't know how you feel about that, but I just got more nuanced in helping people through the repentance process. Yes, being sexually active before marriage is a sin. I'm not, not taking that away, but sometimes the bottom of the iceberg is more nuanced. So I don't yeah, know. I think a lot of women um, in our culture and, and maybe other religious cultures um, and maybe just in general in society, I think women struggle a little bit to understand how to be fully autonomous. Mm. Uh, they've given their autonomy over to other people or they've been taught from the time they were a child that they had to, you know, live life the way their parents wanted them to live. And so once they start to kind of understand that isn't a healthy way to live my life, they they push back and and maybe start exploring ways to fill this hole that they haven't developed autonomy, um, emotional maturity. And uh, and so they have to kind of maybe take a few steps back before they then can create a healthy relationship. Maybe they're so used to creating a relationship through the enticement of sex. And, and that's a pretty shallow way to create a relationship. So they're going to have to step back and create some deeper emotion, some emotional vulnerability, learn to maybe be a little more autonomous, speak up for themselves, those sorts of things. But I will also say on the other side, men sometimes put too much focus on the physical as yeah. well because they are uncomfortable with the emotional. And again, even if you marry uh, and so you're having sex within a marriage and that's quote unquote, not sinful, um, you are not really connecting with this person because you're emotionally shut down, right? You're emotionally disconnected. And that's where we have People who either fall on one of two, you know, spectrums where they're having anxious sex, where they're getting you having sex to feel reassurance, or they're having solitary sex where they're with a partner, 
but they're not connecting with their partner. There's no emotional drive to be more intimate. And so we can have a lot of bad sex in a lot of ways. Um, But what we really want to focus on is how can I fully give myself um, in a relationship? And so that includes, I'm going to 100% commit to this person. I'm going to 100% be open and vulnerable and emotional. And then I'm going to share my body in healthy, uh, you know, consensual ways that allow me to really create unity and pleasure with this person. Um, This line, fully give myself, reminds me some of the temple language. And I've never thought about that in the context of emotionally fully giving myself until you just said that and how important that is. Um, So thank you. In this last segment, um, I feel like listeners, I'm shifting gears to your personal story that I think might be helpful for listeners. And I feel like pulling out a BYU map of just all the buildings. And if I've got this right, you started your education in economics, and I don't know what building that is. And then you went to law school, and I kind of know where that is, and you got a JD. And then um, you got a master's from BYU in family and human development, and that's probably in a different building. And now you're a professor in the School of Family Life, and maybe that's a different building. So you have been around BYU campus, <laughs> and I think there's beauty in that, um, in your personal story, is that this comes back to the very beginning. I'm sure your your younger self and her first year at BYU would never have imagined this well, is where you would be. You'd have multiple multiple graduate degrees, um, be a published author, um, doing work not only in our faith community but beyond, and a professor in the School of Family Life. And not everybody. This is part of my mantra on this podcast. Don't be. Don't become don't feel like you've got to write a story like dr levitt she's not saying write my but it's sometimes it's really helpful to hear your story and the principles in your story especially for younger people that i've got some kids that you just they just kind of knew from day one what direction they were going to go and i was kind of one of those kids i knew i was a be a business person but a lot of people and i've always thought it's a little harder for women i remember you know, my day at BYU, if I knew if I would, would get married, it didn't change anything. My career would still say the same. My education would still say the same. And I wouldn't have to navigate, you know, being a mom and how this fits. And so you're a woman, obviously, and you've had eight kids. And so you've managed all this professional work around being a mom. And I just, it's more complicated generally, but that's a long introduction to just talk to younger people that. Um, the advice you'd give them to help them find their way, especially from an academic, professional, career perspective? Yeah, I would say that um, that God let me think I was writing my story <laughs> for a while. And, uh, and, and I had good ideas. I had good ideas about what I thought I wanted to do. And, um, it, and those were important steps for me. But I never imagined um, where I am today. And I think that's because at some point, and this was a long process filled with lots of tears, um, I let God write my story. And that is scary because I remember one time getting a very clear answer to prayer 
um, that was not the answer I wanted. Hmm. And the, the um, explanation of why that was the answer were, were just these words. Shalom, if you will listen to me, I will make more of you than you know that, that, that you understand you can be, right? And um, that scared me. And that was actually when I was taking the step into this PhD that I'm doing now. I had, I had a bunch of kids when I started this PhD and we were moving across the country and it was a very different place than BYU. And I was none of the typical things that their students were. And, um, and I think at first, people at Penn State were pretty suspicious of me. I was conservative, a Mormon, a mom, uh, you know, all these things that they were not and did not necessarily like. I would say by the end of my time at Penn State, I was good friends with everybody. And That's I collaborated cool. with lots of people. And um, that was a scary step for me to take. And I learned a lot about how to trust God during that, that journey. Um, and I had lots of failures. And, and so I, and it's not that I want to emphasize those failures, but I want to mention them because sometimes, and I include myself in this group, especially women, we feel like if we fail, that that's just not for us, that, that we just better take that off our list. Um, if I wasn't good in a certain class or I wasn't good as I didn't get into a program I thought I would get into, um, we just, we say, okay, well, that must not be for me. I want to tell you, it still could be for you. Um, and maybe these are just setbacks that are going to teach you something about grit or about humility or whatever it is. Um, because I know I had plenty of failures along the way and each of those failures actually taught me to trust God and to hunker down and work harder. Um, and sometimes as women, we think there's only one path forward, right? We're going to be a wife and a mother. And that those are beautiful paths. I love those paths in my life. Um, but I also know that God intended me to do some other things that are also meaningful. And that's good too. And so I always tell young women who are thinking about this, they're feeling those promptings. They say, yeah, but maybe my family doesn't support me. My parents might not think that's very appropriate. Um, I remind them to get a few women or men, probably a combination of the two, that are good cheerleaders for you, that you can come to on those down days and say, I feel like giving up. And they can give you some good perspective. Um, and I am that for a lot of young women and men. Um, we all need that. So find people who can be in your corner and who can help you really see through the foggy mists when things get hard. That was a great segment. And I love this idea that if it didn't work out, we don't check that whole category off. That's really thoughtful and very mindful to sit with that for a while. Talk about another question comes to mind. We need to wrap up listeners. Um, this is sort of a question you advising men, your husband, David has been, he's not on the podcast, but 
I assume he's done some really wonderful things to support you in your career um, and the different things you've done, including going across the country to Penn State and Ukraine. So talk about, this is you talking to men to support their wives and their pursuits. Any general principles so men can do better to support their wives? Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. There's actually some research on this. Oh, that, show, <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> that, that shows that women need to talk through what it is they're struggling with. And so when your your wife or your sister or who or your daughter comes to you and says, I'm just trying to figure out what to do next in my professional life, don't offer the answer. Just ask questions. Because she's got the answer. Um, she just needs to have it kind of brought out. And additionally, even if she doesn't know what the answer is, she still needs to go through this process of having the confidence in herself to find her own answer. And so a lot of times when my daughters, I have a daughter who actually just got her PhD and wow. um she was asking me a question a while back. She was going to take a little trajectory change. And instead of going into academics, she wanted to become a writer. And I just asked her, so what's, what's prompting this? You know, I just started asking questions about where it was, where, where she was in her mind. By the end of the conversation, she had the answer. She knew where she was going. Um, she just needed to talk that out. And we know from research, right? Women aren't necessarily asking for the solution. They're asking to be able to talk this through with someone. So that would be my advice. Don't, don't uh, jump in and think you need to be uh, the answer. You need to just let, you just need to be the sounding board. I love that. And I love the men that, you know, really empower their wives to be everything that they're meant to be. And they're not threatened by that, but um, that's empowering to them to see their wives excel in ways that they didn't imagine when they were um, dating or getting married. And I think that takes a confident man. And I, I think that's a good thing for men to see women that way. Well, it's um, a pretty powerful couple that, that both can, can appreciate the qualities of each other. Um, now you brought with your last segment, you brought me back to being the sorry listeners about the YSA Bishop stuff, but um, it's interesting as you talk about your daughter because the longer I that's only a three year assignment, but I shifted it first from I wanted I was the new bishop and I'd just been set apart and I was supposed to have the answers. And I recognized after a while that my job wasn't to have the answers, my job was to help my YSAs make the best decisions they could and fully own those decisions. And I realized if they would come, should I go to school, Bishop? Should I date him? You're sort of the sounding board for everything going on in their lives. And I'm glad they open up. But, you know, the last years, especially, I went the road you did where I just let them talk and ask open-ended questions. And often they would leave the Bishop's office with the answer. And yeah. it's nothing I said. And then they they made better decisions and they fully owned it. Um, and I think there's important parenting principle and important ministering principles. We teach, teach correct principles and let people govern themselves. And I think 
people feel better about decisions if they fully own them and they're not responding to what in a negative way for expectations we have as they're going a different direction. And so that conversation you just had with your daughter is a perfect example of how to do that. Um, so I, did, I love that. That's terrific. Anything you'd like to share? Listeners, we will, um, in the show notes, we'll put your blog, your podcast. I think you will put a Psychology Today link. Is that the right pub? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anything, and anything else you want me to add, we'll, we'll exchange emails and I can add more links there. But anything you'd like to share in closing, Dr. Levitt? Um, yeah, I would just reiterate that uh, any issue surrounding sexuality is intended to create intimacy. Even the conflict that we experience within our relationships is an opportunity for intimacy. It helps us get to know each other better, to feel more connected. And uh, I love that. I think it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful element of how Heavenly Father designed us. That's great. Thank you, Dr. Shalom Eastwood Levitt. Let's get your maiden name in there. <laughs> there you go. Um, and thank you for all your work and just taking time out to be on the podcast and listeners act on the impressions. I've learned a lot and um, I hope we all have. And thank you for your work. And this is Richard Osler and Dr. Levitt signing off on another episode of And Julie, I'm Dr. McBride. Thank you for making this podcast possible. <laughs> thank, thank you, you. listeners. Thank you.